I thought I'd start the talk tonight by reading some sections, a couple of pieces from this refrain that Gil mentioned last night. As, as he said, this is repeated after every uh, instruction, every meditation instruction in the, in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta. So this one is pulled from one of the body contemplations. And uh, the language of this refrain, a refrain in, in music, it's a, rep- it's a repetition. Uh, and the language of the refrain is pretty much identical except for one word uh, that changes. And it's the, the word that refers to the foundation So in this case, it will refer to the body, but it just as well can refer to feeling, mind states, and phenomena. One abides, observing in the body its nature of arising, or abides observing in the body its nature of vanishing, or abides observing in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. And so this is the, in some ways, the the promise of the practice, freedom, non-clinging. And it is, as Gil points out, this understanding of impermanence. Gil talked a lot last night about inconstancy, use that term, inconstancy, the nature of things to arise and pass away, arise and pass away, that they are inconstant. Understanding this inconstancy leads very naturally to release of clinging. The process by which this happens is described in many places, but here's one example. Form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. This is a... In this... uh, laying out of what's impermanent. The understanding of this is it's the teaching of the five aggregates and the understanding is that all of our experience is comprised in some fashion within these five categories. So essentially this part of the teaching is saying all experience is impermanent. All experience is inconstant. Seeing thus, seeing the inconstancy of all experience. 
one experiences disenchantment towards form, disenchantment towards feeling, towards perception, towards volitional formations, towards consciousness. Experiencing disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated, freed from clinging. So these two words, disenchantment and dispassion, I'd like to reflect on those a little bit this afternoon. So it, this, uh, this text says, seeing that things are inconstant, one becomes disenchanted. I like this word disenchantment because it points to the way or a way that we are kind of caught up in this magic show of being enchanted. This kind of, we're enchanted by um, the way that we familiarly see experience. We're enchanted by our perceptions and feelings and we're, we're, we, we believe them to be valuable in some form or other. We're enchanted by our, um, our desire for holding on to pleasant experience. We're enchanted by our, uh, our aversion, thinking that our aversion will help us get rid of unpleasant experience. And so there's a way in which this enchantment is kind of holding us under its spell holding us under its sway, having us believe in some fashion. When we're enchanted, we believe in some fashion that desire and aversion are serving us and helping us to be happier. Uh, the, the enchantment of greed is that Oh, I'll get that thing, I'll be happy. The enchantment of aversion, I get rid of that thing, then I'll be happy. And so this, um, this enchantment is really ignorance and delusion weaving its spell over us. And so to become disenchanted is to see more clearly, to begin to understand that the, the views, the way that we've been navigating our lives being kind of held hostage by greed and aversion and delusion, we begin to see that we've been held hostage. And we begin to see that the views and the beliefs and the, the delusion, the ignorance that is, uh, has been enchanting us, we begin to, to see through it to some extent. We begin to see through that. And begin to recognize that Yes, there is a kind of happiness that comes from getting what I want. There is. There is a kind of happiness that comes with that. 
And the Buddha acknowledges that, actually. He says, yes, this is a form of happiness, but it is the least form of happiness that's out there. And it actually tends to perpetuate this enchantment because as we engage in that enchantment, it reinforces itself. We get what we want. We have that little bit of happiness. And by the way, that happiness, this is something that we don't see in this enchantment so much, but begin to see as we start to pay attention to our experience, that the happiness that comes when we get something that we want. It's not just about the getting the thing. There's some happiness that comes from associating with something that we want, from having that thing. There's some happiness that comes with that. But a big piece of the happiness that comes from getting what we want is that the feeling of wanting goes away. The feeling of wanting is an agitating, kind of off-kilter kind of feeling. And part of the motivation for getting what we want is to get rid of that feeling of wanting. And in our enchantment and in our delusion, we think the only way towards having that ease or release that comes with the freedom from the wanting, the release from that wanting, we think the only way to that is to get what we want. And so the watching, exploring the impermanent nature of experience, we actually can start to see that not only do the things that we want and want to get rid of, not only are they impermanent, but that the wanting too and the aversion too is impermanent. And we may actually witness at some point a desire and be curious, turning towards what is this experience of desire? Instead of buying into it, instead of believing it, believing its enchantment that getting will make me happy, we get curious about the desire itself, the wanting itself. And perhaps we witness it passing away. And that experience. At one point on a, a retreat, I was um, noticing that there was a strong desire to look at people, particularly wi- while I was walking. This was a three-month course. and. It was at a particular time during the three-month course when they were really encouraging us to uh, uh, use um, restraint of the senses as a piece of practice. And so I was not looking at people. I spent pretty much the whole three months looking at socks. (laughs) And uh, I really wanted to look at people. Some weeks into this, especially when I was doing walking meditation, and for some reason outside when I was doing walking meditation, um, you know, I really wanted to just glance up and see who was around, who was I walking with, and I do—I wasn't doing it. I was kind of following the rules. I'm not going to look. I'll look at their feet. I'll look at the shoes. And um, 
At some point, I noticed the rigidity there. I noticed that the mind was pretty rigid about that. And, and what I wasn't noticing that was that I wanted to look. I was just going to follow the rules. And at some point, I began to get interested in the wanting. So I started just checking in. What does it feel like to want to look? And I began to feel that experience of wanting itself, feel that pull, feel that, that sense of like all it's going to take is it just the subtlest shift of my head and eyes. Nobody would even have to know I was looking. <laughs> and, and there was such a, a, a pull to do that. But I, I wasn't, I was curious about watching the desire. And so I didn't follow through on that action and just watched the desire. And I began to notice something interesting. I began to notice the arising and vanishing of desire. And I noticed that there were conditions to that arising and vanishing of desire to look at people. If I was walking by myself, there was no desire. I was outside just doing walking meditation, happily walking back and forth. And somebody would appear in my peripheral vision Desire arose, arising. While that person was in my vision, field of vision, the desire grew. Especially as it got easier and easier to all I had to do was just like <laughs> look over my glasses, you know. They maybe come up beside me and then maybe walk right in front of me. Boy, that was really tempting. Such a strong pull. And then they might go up the stairs into the building. Poof. The desire vanishes. The ending of desire. Having been paying attention to the feeling of desire itself, when the mind experienced the ending of desire, it was like being released from a vice grip. It was such a feeling of release, such a feeling of freedom. And so this uh, enchantment that we're under, as we pay attention to our experience, we begin to see through the enchantment and the, the witnessing of things as impermanent is a key way that this happens, seeing the impermanent nature of experience. As we see that experience is impermanent, there's different things that we understand about that and how our enchantment has created suffering. So this enchantment that we're under, it's, not, it's, it's an enchantment that's keeping us attached to suffering. We are enchanted, believing somehow in this enchantment that suffering is good. It's like we're, we're, our mind is turned on its head. That this belief that getting what I want will make me happy is actually just reinforcing this entrapment in this feeling of wanting. And so, one of the things that we see through witnessing experience as impermanent is that as we, see, as we, we, we see our um, minds trying to hold on 
to what's happening. You know, we, we, we might like certain experience to be pleasant, so we've kind of constructed things, and it's like, oh, we got it. Let's try to keep it this way. And so there's a kind of a, a clinging. There's a clinging to things in a particular way. And there's equally, at times, a clinging to having uh, arranged our world or controlled our world to keep certain unpleasant things at bay. So there can be a clinging on both sides of, of greed or aversion. And what we start to see is that clinging is trying to hold on in the face of things changing. And that the activity of holding on is futile. We begin to recognize that it doesn't make any sense to try to hold on to the to experience when it is so inconstant so cha- so much changing i don't know who what what teacher first talked about this i think i think it might be actually that a student came up with this analogy but it's become a kind of a an analogy that's shared widely in in the the teaching um, circles that the suffering of clinging is like rope burn. You know that rope burn happens when you're trying to hold on to a rope and it's slipping through your hand, but you're trying to hold on to it. And this is kind of the way the suffering of of clinging happens. We're, we're trying to hold on to something that is impermanent. It can't be held on to. It's changing. There's no way really to hold on to it. And trying to hold on to it creates suffering. So that's one thing that we begin to recognize as we pay attention to our experience and notice the impermanent nature of experience. Trying to hold on to impermanent experience is suffering. And then not only that, we see that what we're trying to hold on to there actually isn't anything to hold on to. What we are trying to hold on to is no more than an idea in our minds. Gil mentioned this last night, talking about the water bottle. It's not so much the water bottle that we're attached to, it's the idea that we get attached to. Some idea, some belief, some view. This kind of became clear to me at one point on another retreat. Um, I really wanted to be able to, dis- I, I really wanted to have the experience. I heard this experience about noticing things being impermanent, actually. It was like, Teachers talked about seeing the arising and passing of phenomena. I really wanted that experience. There's a lot of suffering around wanting that experience, trying to find it, trying to see it. And so I began exploring the suffering of that wanting, 
being curious about what it is. What is the, the wanting there? What's happening there? So I thought I wanted something, some experience. But as I began to look at what was going on in the mind, what I noticed was that my mind kept creating an image of sitting in the room with the interview teacher, describing that I had experienced this, <laughs> and them like being so happy for me that I had experienced this. And us laughing together about how wonderful it was. This like this huge like fantasy of having of telling somebody that I'd had this experience. And as I saw that I realized I don't even know what it is. What I want is to be able to tell somebody I've had it. <laughs> this is an idea in the mind. It was it was a construct of the mind. And our wantings are largely like this. They're not we don't actually want something tangible. We want an idea. And beginning to see th- what, what is it that we actually want? You know, what, what do we want? This is a useful inquiry. You know, we think we want something or other. We think we want to be praised or something. And can be curious to explore what is it actually that we want? What's the underlying belief or, or, or um, um, what is it that we really want? So in exploring our experience and seeing, beginning to see, as mindfulness gets established, we start to see our experience, it's like through a different perspective. We're no longer quite so enchanted, seeing through the, the perspective of enchantment, we may start to see through a different perspective, seeing that things are impermanent that suffering is created in the mind through this clinging. Clinging is, is also a creation of the mind. And that what we're clinging to is a creation of the mind. And all of what happens in the mind is changing so rapidly. There is just nothing really to hold on to. And the activity of trying to hold on is the suffering. And so we begin to become disenchanted with that clinging. And we see too that this habit of clinging is based on a complete misperception. That thinking that somehow that there is something out there and some way to construct things such that I can be permanently happy. Some way to, that the belief of, of um, greed, as I mentioned, is that having that thing will make me happy. And some part of our mind knows that, you know, having that thing will make me happy for a little while. But 
we're kind of buying into the the belief of greed that well I can get that one and then I'll get something else and then I'll get something else and then I maybe get rid of something else and then I'll get something else and that we can just string these moments of getting what we want and getting what we don't want and have a perfect like string of experiences where we're never unhappy that's what we think that might be possible and it just is not that is not the way the world works And so we begin to recognize that the impermanent nature, the inconstant nature of experience begins to to, to kind of pull the veils back. I just remembered the analogy of the Wizard of Oz, you know, it's like we see that it's just a little guy behind the curtain pulling lovers. It's not like this amazing thing in front of us. It's just... greed, convincing us, trying to convince us that this will make us happy. And so we begin to, through seeing this impermanent, inconstant nature of experience, see through the enchantment. And what follows that is a natural fading away of the clinging, fading away of that enchantment. And the word for the next word in this um, statement is dispassion. Experiencing disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. And the word dispassion, I mean, we may have a relationship somehow with that word that we may think it means not caring. But the word itself in Pali, viraga, could literally mean something like fading away fading away of this enchantment. The the word raga um, sometimes means dye, like you dye a cloth. And so the term itself, the term for dispassion in Pali, suggests a fading of the enchantment, a fading of the clinging. Uh, Much as if a cloth were out in the sun, it would gradually fade. So with this, uh, with, with the seeing of the impermanence, the mind begins to gradually understand that holding on to impermanent, inconstant experience makes no sense. And our patterns, our habits around clinging and holding begin to slowly release. And in my um, own practice, in my sense of this fading away, it's, it's like, it's not like there's some big bang of 
understanding that suddenly all clinging goes away. It feels much more like there's just layers and layers and layers of ways in which the mind is entrenched and enmeshed in, in beliefs and views and in ways of clinging. And gradually over the course of our practice, we, it's like we, 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 are, we see certain layers. We may see certain layers of how our mind is caught in, in everyday life around particular emotions. For myself, the very first um, place that I explored was around anger. Caught, enchanted by anger, believing somehow anger would make me happy by making somebody else miserable. And beginning to see through that. So, you know, the, the just layers of, of cultural baggage, of, of uh, personal baggage. Just like, it's almost like we've got these layers that are get being excavated in our mind. And so certain, certain layers we begin to understand, oh, that's not, that doesn't serve we may begin to recognize that certain patterns and habits don't work so well for us. And that, that they're, they're not so functional. Or particular kinds of reactivity. For me, this the first practice that really got me into um, mindfulness was this anger I had at a particular person. It was a very strong anger. And it was kind of making me non-functional at times. And so that's where I began exploring in my practice, looking at that particular anger. And over the course of a couple of years, that particular anger at that particular person began to be so thoroughly understood and began to, I began to understand how it was making me miserable to be angry. And that particular anger fell away. And along with it, a lot of understanding around anger in general happened. But the falling away of that particular anger, I can think of that person now and just hope that they're happy. Not, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that the mind can release that level of anger. And so that, that particular anger has faded away. And along with it, a lot of understanding came about how anger works and how anger in general hurts this being. And so there was, there was some understanding of some of the deeper layers and deeper holdings around anger. But there was a fading away, a, a release from a particular kind of anger. And in, in, in particular moments, too, seeing you know, anger not arising as, as a particular um, congealing of thoughts coming into the mind, and the mind seeing it as an arising. Oh, this is a thought arising in the mind. A thought about this person arising in the mind and seeing then that the, that the witnessing of that thought led to the non-arising of anger. So the mind is just releasing. It's uh, naturally letting go. And so there's, there's these layers, layers and layers of 
different kinds of clinging. And so we may go through certain releases, certain ways that the mind lets go of being enchanted with particular things, particular habits of mind. And so there's a, a gradual nature to this process. We can even imagine this, it's almost like as a, as a natural maturation, you know, this fading away of uh, interest in what used to be so meaningful to us. Just um, remembering perhaps as a child, you might have been very attached to a particular toy or some game maybe having it with you all the time, needing to know where it is. And yet as we age, our interests shift and we are less enchanted by that particular toy. And so very naturally, as we mature, the desire for that fades. And maybe for a little while we go back to it thinking, you know, gee, didn't I used to It's kind of like we go back and try it on again. used to feel so good to play with that thing. (laughs) It's not interesting anymore. And then at some point, the mind just lets it go. It's like, it's just, there's not an interest in picking it up. And so this this is kind of the way that the fading of dispassion works. It's, it can be a slow process, a gradual fading, a gradual release. And the Buddha pointed to um, this gradual nature of our freedom in a uh, couple of analogies many analogies actually, but, but two in particular I'll point to. Uh, in one he points to a carpenter picking up basically a, a tool and um, um, the Buddha said, you know, the carpenter notices one day that the tool fits really nicely in their hand. You know, it's like there's, it's just been worn away gradually because of the repeated contact, you pick up that tool kind of in the same way each time, you know, kind of like shoes wear in and get to feel very comfortable because they stretch to your foot just in the right way. And so day in, a, in one day of picking up that tool or putting on that shoe, you don't notice that there's been a, a stretching of the shoe or a gradual wearing away of that handle. But gradually over time, it happens that wearing away. And uh, the Buddha points out in this particular analogy of the, the, the carpenter's tool that the carpenter doesn't know each day so much of the handle has worn away. 
But at a certain point they know, oh, the handle has worn away. It fits the hand in this way. So there's the, the understanding that it has worn away, but not the seeing of the, of the moment-to-moment letting go of things. And sometimes this is the way our path is. It's not like this big bang, like we're suddenly in, the, in between one moment and the next. There's clinging and then non-clinging and this big blissful release. Sometimes there can be experiences that are kind of like that when we notice a particular clinging release like that. The moment when I noticed the, the release from the wanting that was a kind of a shocking, amazing experience to, to see the contrast in the moment of that release, seeing that release happen. So sometimes we can see a release and feel the release and get a, an, an understanding in the moment of what it means to let go. But sometimes it's much more gradual than that. And it's more like looking back over a long period of time that we understand, ah, this has worn away. This has released. The other analogy that the Buddha uses is that of a, of a ship when it's hauled up on dry land after it's been out in the sea for a while, kind of a shipwreck. The, the, the ship is just the parts of the ship are on the beach and the, the rope and the parts of the wood of the ship are strewn about the beach. And each day, the sun, the sand, the water, the wind, the waves kind of wear away at those parts. And if you were to look at that rope, that rigging every single day, you wouldn't know what changed, what was being worn away. But six months, a year later, you come back, try to pick up that rope, and it falls apart. A lot of our releasing and letting go is like that, this gradual fading away. And so there can be this experience of release at times from clinging and a, and a, a, a kind of a, a lovely, um, almost a lovely uh, visceral experience in that release. The mind feels the ease of that letting go as the as the clinging lets go and one of the i think one of the other ways that the the fading away of clinging happens at least for a little while in my practice around certain kinds of clinging uh it was like i would be hanging out in my experience and and noticing these releases noticing the letting go and just feeling the mind settle more and more and more. And then I began to recognize, and I was kind of looking for those releases. 
Almost like I'd pick something up in order to release it. And then the mind starts to settle into a deeper kind of freedom, which is a kind of happiness of not picking up. When something's not picked up, there's nothing to release. in the descriptions of freedom. It's often described as the absence of freedom isn't about getting anything. One definition of freedom This is the peaceful, this is the sublime, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. So it's described as peaceful, but also in terms of letting go, relinquishment, In another place, the freedom is described as the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is freedom, the Buddha says. The ending, the extinction, the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of delusion, this is freedom. When we are enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive and comprehensible to the wise. And for one thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing added to what has been done and nothing remains to be done. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, Even so, neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is the mind, gained is deliverance. So again, the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion The not picking up, going back to that toy from childhood, we just, it doesn't even occur to us to pick up that toy anymore.
another word for this freedom is uh, the unconditioned all of our experience in this being, this body is conditioned and the Buddha speaks of the freedom of mind as being touching into the unconditioned. It's interesting to explore, think of the possibility that being with knowing this conditioned experience is part of how we begin to touch into the possibility of freedom, of not picking up of the unconditioned. And there's not a separation in some ways. It is through meeting the conditioned that we that the mind understands how to not pick up or that the picking up creates suffering. I'll read another quote. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, which to me, it's a very inspiring kind of quote. Bhikkhu Bodhi's language is sometimes um, technical, but I hope that this, uh, I'll I'll explore it with you a little bit. So he says, though the realization of the unconditioned requires a turning away from the conditioned, it must be emphasized that this realization is achieved precisely through the understanding of the conditioned. Nibbana cannot be reached by backing off from a direct confrontation with samsara to lose oneself in a blissful oblivion to the world. The path to liberation is a path of understanding, of comprehension and transcendence, not of escapism or emotional self-indulgence. Nibbana can be attained only by turning one's gaze towards samsara and scrutinizing it in all its starkness. The understanding of the conditioned is the way to the unconditioned. Essentially what Bhikkhu Bodhi is pointing to is that we don't transcend the conditioned by just somehow levitating above it or something. The transcendence comes through understanding and the understanding comes through meeting. We land with our experience. The starkness of our frustration, our anger, our confusion, our greed, our self-hatred, our holding on all of the ways that we struggle and suffer. F- 
freedom comes about through meeting, understanding suffering, not by checking out somehow, finding some blissful state to be separated from it. Joseph Goldstein puts this in a little simpler terms. He says, we want to understand and be, we want to understand suffering without experiencing suffering. But it doesn't work that way. And the understanding is where the release the freedom and the ultimate not picking up begins to naturally unfold. It's a very natural path, natural conditions as we open to our experience through this perspective that we've been exploring. The inconstant arising and passing nature of experience begins to be revealed to us because we're interested in phenomena as phenomena. We're interested in what is this experience happening right now and what happens to it? And as we look at our experience, we begin to recognize kind of some of the specifics about our experience. We might begin to understand something about what anger feels like and frustration feels like and begin to understand the turning towards that. We get to understand some specifics about the experience, but we also begin to see that whatever is arising has a nature to end. And so we see this arising and passing, arising and passing. We see the, the nature of experience doesn't matter what it is, whatever is arising has the nature to pass. And this naturally leads to the disenchantment, the disillusionment, which naturally leads to this fading away, release, and not picking up. And so what is the expression of freedom? Wh wh what does it look like to be free? We can maybe think some about the Buddha's life. The Buddha had this understanding and release from greed, aversion, and delusion at the age of about 35 and continued to teach for 45 some years. And so this freedom, in his case, it didn't look like he went off and floated on a cloud somewhere and kind of detached from the world. He was in the world talking to kings, working in his community, dealing with the kind of messiness of community and 
creating all these guidelines and rules for his community so that it could be a harmonious community. He was engaged in the world. There's one story from the Dhammapada commentary that tells of him um, uh, trying to avert a water war between his, the, 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 the kingdom that he grew up in and a neighboring kingdom. There was a river that ran nearby. Then they were fighting over the water, the water rights. It was basically water rights they were fighting over. And the Buddha went and stood in the battlefield, in the middle of the battlefield, putting his body in the way of the battle to try to stop the war. And I understand that it worked for a little while, but that when he went away, (laughs) the war kind of came back again. But he wasn't removed from the world. So these descriptions of freedom being the absence of, and there's a beautiful poem actually um, in one of the the poems of the Sutta Nipata that describes a little bit of what it's like. What, what's the liberated person like? Somebody asks the Buddha, what is, tell me, what is the character of somebody who is free? Wh- what does it mean? Somebody peaceful, what, what does that look like? And the Buddha responds, a person who is not angered, not frightened, not boastful, not fretful, who gives wise advice, who is calm, restrained in speech, who is indeed a sage, a person who is not attached to the future, who does not sorrow over the past, who finds solitude amidst sense contact and is not guided by fixed views, a person who is retiring, not deceitful, not covetous, not greedy, not impudent, not arousing contempt, who does not engage in malicious speech, a person who is not does not relish pleasure, who is not arrogant, who is mild and of ready wit, who is not credulous, who by nothing is repelled, a person who is even-tempered, ever-attentive, a person for whom there are no tethers. This is someone I call peaceful. And so it's much a description of what they are not and what they don't do. But that leaves a lot of room for engaging in the world. To me, this is an inspiring description because it's a description of a person living in the world, but not in the usual way, not not guided by greed, aversion, and delusion. Our minds perhaps can't fathom that we would be active in the world if we didn't want something with this kind of needy desire or want to get rid of something with this aversion. Greed and aversion kind of also contain that delusion is you're not going to do anything unless you're motivated by me. But when greed and aversion fall away, we are not in a place of non-action. There's an inspiration to act that, that my understanding is it's very natural uh, the, the, the response to the world 
the heart connection to the world when greed, aversion, and delusion are absent is love and compassion and wisdom. And these two are motivating forces. Wisdom acts. Compassion acts. Love acts in the world. In some ways we can recognize that when our mind is not ensnared with clinging and tied up in knots and wrapped tightly trying to protect and defend, there's a lot more room for love and compassion and action motivated by love, compassion, and wisdom. Greed, aversion, and delusion take a lot of energy. The freedom from that creates not non-action, but a skillful response to the world, a responsiveness, an attuned response to the world. So let's sit for a moment. <laughs> 